And we'll open again to Romans chapter 12. And I'll read for you this morning verses 3 through 6. And we'll talk about some of those other particulars in those in the in the in passage immediately following following that we'll talk about those next week uh, the individual gifts and applications of the gifts in the body but we're going to talk this morning about the oneness of the body and so the apostle writes for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, Let us use them. Father, in Jesus' name, may the gifts that you've blessed us with in this local body be used this morning, O Lord. And may your servant expound rightly these wonderful passages and teachings from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to talk about the oneness of the church this morning, but I want to talk about it to some extent. The oneness is in contrast with unity, and I'll explain that. But but what I want to say at the outset is oneness is something that's given to us from above. We already have it. And unity is something that we give in to the body, that we work toward. It's interesting that the the great things of the Christian religion are a blend of divine and human effort, aren't they? Well, when you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's human and he's divine, right? We think of the scriptures, it's a work, it's a human work, but it's inspired by a divine author. And the church is human, and that's the part... That's, tru- that's troubling, the human part. But we're filled with God's Spirit. So it's human and divine working together always in the body of Christ. And so he says, and he writes to the, <clears throat> to the Romans here, So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. You know, I can go into 1 Corinthians 6 and show you that you don't belong to yourself. We just don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God, but God is proclaiming that it's his will that we belong to one another. And that's the unity that we try to cultivate in the body of Christ. This section of the epistle is the Lord's own teaching on this subject, on the nature and function of the church. The apostle has used, among other things, this great illustration of the church as a body. And he really takes it well beyond um, the place where we usually take an illustration. He goes right into the parts of the body and shows that he really means we are a body. But we're not just a body, are we? We're not just any old body. We're the body of Christ. 
And so he develops this theme throughout the New Testament. He speaks of the oneness of the body. Verse 4 tells us that we are many members in one body. And why do I say that this represents the Lord's own teaching? Perhaps you remember from the high priestly prayer, so-called, of John 17, where the Lord prepared himself in the garden to meet the executioner on the following morning. And he prayed this prayer. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. Now we know that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one. They are bound up together in some mysterious way. And somehow he's inviting us into that oneness. He's not only inviting us, he's declaring to God his prayer. He's making a prayer that we would be one with God. It's, it's unthinkable to think that his prayer has not been answered. And so he asks again in the, same, in the same passage, I do not pray for these alone, meaning those here with me in the garden. I always cherish that the Lord added this little vignette toward the end of his prayer. He's not just praying for those who are currently disciples in the, in the first century, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's praying for us who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Now that's oneness. So we can see that this wonderful oneness of the body of Christ was the will of Christ for the church. He prayed it, and so it is. And so Paul declares it. We being many are one body. He's not saying we're striving to become one with Christ. We are one with Christ. That's what the first 11 chapters were about. It's a gift from God that we've been latched in with the Holy Trinity. The blessed oneness of the church is something that is bestowed on her from above. And that's the first point in my treatment of the subject today. Um, the oneness of the church is not an artificial thing. We don't work it up. It's not like, oh Lord, we're working towards that blessed oneness. It's not accomplished by us. It's not the product of human effort or institutions. There's all kinds of efforts to try to make the church one, to unite the denominations, to do all of these things, which I must tell you this morning, I won't go into it at length, but that's a very perverse thing. Not all the institutions preach the gospel as written, as we noted this morning from some examples. But this oneness emanates from the body itself. How could it be otherwise if we're a body? It's the nature of the body of Christ as it is with any body to emit an implicit inner unity apart from which it could not possibly function as design. The illustration of the church as a body is one of the most useful illustrations in Scripture. Think of it this way. You do not have to teach the hand to be a hand. The first thing a little baby does when you hold him close to you is he grabs your face. 
And he's looking at his hand do it. He's like, look at that. Look what this can do. He's not teaching it how to do that. It already knows. It's from within. You don't have to teach a hand to be a, a hand. You don't have to teach a baby how to grasp something. They're always grasping the wrong thing, it seems. You don't have to teach a hand how to hold. You don't have to teach a finger how to point or a hand how to caress or to swat or to slap or to punch. You don't have to teach those things. The hand already knows. The power of the ear to hear is not learned. It's the natural function of the ear. The ear just hears. You can't even shut them off. Have you noticed that? You can't shut your ear off. Actually, I, I think some of you have, are doing that right now. But no, you, you can't shut off the ear. The ear just hears. The eye just sees. It's the very thing that defines the ear is the hearing. The eye sees what's put before it. It does not need to learn to focus or to stare. You know, I can look at this microphone right here. I'm almost cross-eyed when I do it. Or I can look at the stars of heaven and instantly my eyes focus to something billions of miles away. It's an amazing thing, the, the eye. But I didn't teach it to do that. It just does it. And likewise, the body of Christ is one. The functions are implicit. They are what defines her. They are prayed for by Jesus and bestowed on the body by the Father. Just as in these bodies, he blessed us with a certain autonomy. He's blessed the body of Christ with a certain autonomous oneness. Christ prayed for a spiritual union between the church and the Trinity. Father that they may be one as we are one. And then later on, he incorporated the Holy Spirit into that. I must leave that the paraclete or the comforter might come and he'll lead you into all truth. We could hardly believe that his prayer was not answered. In other words, our search for oneness is perhaps a vain search. It's like a man standing on a mountaintop, looking upward and saying, show me the sky. It's akin to the believer who sees himself searching for God. And Jesus said to him, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Or it's not. <laughs> However, this oneness that is our nature is not always evident by our thoughts and actions, is it? We seem very different on certain levels. And by the way... In the body of Christ, we're going to try to capture this, and this is not that easy to do, but we're one with diverse parts, just like a body is, all right? We're one with diverse parts, just like a body. And so the apostle would have us, because our thoughts don't always seem to be of one mind, our actions don't always seem to be what we preach. He would have us cultivate certain beliefs and practices that make our oneness clearer to the observer and to ourselves. And clearer to the other members of the body. And so our, our verse, from our verse we read, we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. He's not speaking here of a search or of a striving. He's speaking of a divinely accomplished condition. 
there are certain times when the individual local bodies seem to be fractured or dissevered. Now, the local bodies are to be an image of the universal body of Christ. And much, if not most, of the New Testament is geared toward our, toward our understanding of that. I mean, even the way the Bible's divided, it's written to local churches, to the saints who are in Corinth, to the saints who are in Rome, to the saints who are in Philippi with their elders and deacons. There's an implied organization in what we call the organism of the body of Christ. He wrote to Timothy and to, to Titus to minister to their particular bodies. To, to Timothy, he said, um, I left you in Ephesus for this purpose. To Titus, he said, um, I left you in Crete that you might appoint elders, set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. In other words, bring local churches together. The local church has to be a reflection of the universal church of God. And so we begin in the local church. But just as our natural bodies have many members, and the members have a diversity of function, so is the body of Christ. So as the body is one, and as the members are diverse, there is still this tension in the visible body. These are still, or rather, there are still perceived disruptions to the oneness. It sometimes seems that the body isn't one with itself or with Christ. This is where Paul introduces this concept of unity. And as we've seen, unity between the members, which really is nothing more, friends, than a mutual acceptance that oneness with Christ still allows for diversity of function. And it's something that may be cultivated outwardly. Union, unity, we can cultivate. And that's done primarily by teaching. Unity is a function of the mind. We're united by what we know and what we're willing to say about what we know and what we think, and our thinking produces our actions. Our unity is, begins intellectually. It begins with teaching. It's unity of knowledge, of thought, of action. Have you ever heard the, the, the phrase, doctrine divides? You know, people say, well, we don't preach those particular doctrines because they're divisive. Friends, doctrine is divisive. But it's also unifying, isn't it? If it's incorporated. I have had a... F belief and an observation since I started in ministry 28 years ago that people will walk out and leave the church just as they were ready to be blessed just as they were ready to know why they shouldn't leave they would leave and I'm going to give you some examples in scripture of that this morning but our unity begins with teaching we should note that unity is not the same as uniformity. Then we wouldn't have individual players, individual parts, would we? Uh, uniformity is a sign of the cults, not a sign of the church. The church should not des desire, nor should it promote uniformity. We don't want everyone to be the same. In our church, the oneness 
or rather in the church, the oneness with the body does not disturb the uniqueness of the individual. It's always been my observation that Rick will be Rick no matter what we do. <laughs> Sorry, Susan, you're on your own there. They may, in fact, be seeking to impose an artificial unity upon that which is already unified. You know, there's proportion, there's balance in a body. We could take this to a, 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 its logical extreme and it would still work, unlike a lot of um, illustrations that don't. But I mean, let's say you add a, another hand to the body, right? Then it's a monstrosity, isn't it? And what if it's added, like, right here? I mean, you know, there's balance, there's proportion. The body has to, the parts have to grow from within the body to be useful. Paul speaks of the single-mindedness of the body. From verse 16, we read, be of the same mind toward one another. So that's something you can cultivate. He doesn't say you are of the same mind. He says you are one, but be of the same mind. It's something that we do. Now, you can't do that without conversation, without teaching, without proper proclamation of the word from the pulpit or in some of the other teaching sessions that we have. Make no mistake about this. The same mind, be of the same mind, means the same beliefs. It means the same doctrine. We may not have the person of Christ apart from the truths and the attributes of Christ. When we speak of being one with Christ, we must each be speaking of the same set of facts regarding him. Steve went into a church, as he told us, and he asked the pastor how, how to be saved, and he said, well, do a lot of good things, be a good person, do all these, these works, right? But if you ask that same man, do you believe the Bible? He would say yes. Yet he missed the major point of salvation. You know, people say all the time, well, I believe in the Word of God, I believe the Bible, our Catholic friends say that. And then they add all these other extraneous things to Christianity. You know? All these other extraneous things they would add. So it isn't, do you believe the Bible? It's what do you believe about the Bible? And by the way, you might ask, the next time someone says, do you believe the Bible? The next question is, oh really, so you've read the Bible. And what do you think they'll say? They'll say, well, not the whole thing. <laughs> Who would do that? I heard a news guy say that the other day. Well, nobody reads the whole thing. Boy, we are boring people to the world, aren't we? We sit around reading 66 of the same books our whole lives. You could have a bookshelf and it could have 66 books. The rest could be empty. And that's the Christian home. So there are many so-called believers today who see themselves as performing the social dictates of Christ. I hear the social gospel in news media all the time. But usually when they're talking about doing good deeds for people, which are, they, of course, see themselves as being very gracious, wonderful people. What they're doing is showing the hypocrisy of us. They're saying, we don't do that. And they're saying that because we preach some very difficult things, like people are born in sin and need a Savior. 
You know, I, I heard a sermon from MacArthur, uh, John MacArthur, recently. Maybe you don't know this, but I don't listen to a lot of sermons. I don't go online and listen to a lot of different guys preach, you know. But I heard a sermon from John MacArthur, and it was called The Most Hated Doctrine. Have you ever heard that sermon? The Most Hated Doctrine. And it really has to do with total depravity. I talked about it last week. Remember my Phil Donahue illustration last week? <laughs> you mean to tell me it's, it, it's not psychologically damaging to tell a young child he's in sin already? He hasn't done anything. He's barely conscious, and he's already in sin. What a terrible thing. It's psychologically uh, destructive to his personality all his life. And then to tell him there's only one way out of it by the blood of Christ and faith in his crucified body and resurrected body on the cross is only one way with all this plethora of religions and wisdom and knowledge in the world is just one way how judgmental and arrogant can you be it's a very hated doctrine right i just rehearsed the hate for you and it's becoming something that is taking form in society There are those friends today who do not believe in the virgin birth. And then there are those, on the other hand, who believe in the virgin birth, but they also believe in the immaculate conception of the virgin, of the virgin, that she was born of the Holy Spirit. That's the Roman Catholic doctrine. Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit. Mary wasn't born of the Holy Spirit. Both Matthew and Luke give her genealogy. Only Christ is born of the Holy Spirit. What a monstrous doctrine that is. And then there's another one. There's all this Mariolatry. There's this assumption of Mary. Like she's, remember Elijah just went up? He didn't die, right? They say that's of Mary, too. There's a lot of Renaissance art depicting that. That didn't happen. There's nowhere in Scripture it says that that, that happened, you know? We think of all the things that have been added. They're as monstrous as the things that have been taken away. But there's a lot of so-called Christians who believe in the quote, who do not believe in the virgin birth. Then what is Christ if he's not what the Bible said he is? They don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. Indeed, to seek unity with such people is to impose a humanly manufactured sense of unity. It's perverse. Unity for the sake of unity was the sin of Babel. Let's just all get together and do something. Right? Oh, let's just all come together. You hear that all the time. Let's bring people together. Listen, it's good to bring people together, but if you want to be brought together in the oneness of the body of Christ, it starts with faith in Christ, and there's just no other way to be part of that club if you will. Unity for the sake of unity was the sin of Babel, and it continues to be the sin of the world today. They, uh, unity for the sake of truth, friends, is the sign of the church. We're gathered together around a truth and a person representing that truth. Now, I mention this because we've seen in our time some very flawed attempts to produce unity of thought, which involves a rejection of our essential beliefs because they are points of division between the members. Friends, we can be unified 
as a Reformed church with someone who is not Reformed. We can be. But we can't be unified with someone who rejects the virgin birth of Christ or the resurrection. You can't be unified with someone like that. Not, you can be unified with them as a friend or as a co-worker or as a comrade in arms or as a citizen of a nation, but not as a member of the church. You have to confess certain things so we all know that at least for the moment you think you believe those things and we're going to accept that, that you're one of us. And now you'll incorporate in with us over time through time and teaching. But not just anyone can come in. There's some very flawed attempts to produce unity of thought, which involves a rejection of essential truths. We cannot simply jettison essential truths in order to bring about doctrinal unity. That's Babel all over again. Why would we do that? And may God confuse the language of those who do. Paul wrote to the Ephesians of this very thing. He spoke to the oneness of the body just as he does here. I'm telling you, this is, this is um, a, a subject that is repeated throughout the New Testament. And just as he does here, he spoke of that oneness containing a diversity of gifts. And so those gifts are spiritually bestowed. And the purpose of the gifts, the purpose of them was to impart and to teach and to demonstrate the fullness of the biblical teaching of Christ to all the saints. That's why he gave us the gifts. And the gifts to the Ephesians, he said, were attached to offices. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And then he said it was for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry. In a sense, we're all ministers, ministering out there in the world, right? Equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That means the feeding and building up of the body of Christ. Edify means to build up, right? So he gave us the gifts, the diversity of gifts within the oneness of the body, right? The diversity of the gifts to edify that body. Till we all come. So there's a time limit on it. Till we all come to a unity of the faith. You see, we're working toward unity, but we're already one. Till we come to the unity of the faith and what? The knowledge of the Son of God. Now, where the Bible says knowledge, or where the Bible says teaching in English, you could substitute the word doctrine. For some reason, doctrine has fallen on hard times, as though it's something extraneous, something we sort of added to the, to the, to the uh, scriptures to make it difficult, so we could give people degrees who study it. Make no mistake, friend, the unity of the body is more concerned with doctrine and with knowledge than it is with anything else. It's more concerned that we come to a common belief, and belief relates to knowledge. And this I pray, Paul wrote to the Philippians, that your love will abound still more and more in knowledge. Remember I pointed out 1 Corinthians 13 last week? He was talking about the gifts of the Spirit, the proper use of the gifts in chapter 12. 
You get to chapter 14, he picks up on that, and there's this little parenthesis in the middle because he knows the pagan understanding of love is not the Christian understanding, so he gives us this beautiful, poetic, lengthy definition of love. And I read it to you last week. But he goes on to say, only let your conduct be worthy. You see, thought goes to conduct. You don't do anything you haven't preconceived. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. (laughs) Paul hears things. He says that when he's writing to Corinth. He said, I've heard some things about you. I heard you're actually entertaining a great sinner who has his father's wife from chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Remember that? I have heard this. So he hears things. He says, I hear of your affairs, and I hear that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's the church. One spirit, one mind, striving together for faith. And then there is elsewhere, he speaks of the ongoing battle of the church to maintain its blessed unity of thought. And so he pleads with them to strive for the sake of the gospel. And he writes this, Do not in any way be terrified by your adversaries. He means don't shut up just because you're being assaulted. Friends, the church is being assaulted in ways I have never seen before. I almost don't want to say this from the pulpit. It is so perverse. But I'm going to tell you, and maybe some of you have heard this in the news, But in this new woke culture of ours where you can sort of be whatever you want to be, create yourself, there is a being, he's a man, who claims to be a woman. Now, that's common enough today. And we have seen sex change operations to alter that since the 50s and 60s. I don't know why people think it's new. It's not. We've seen that, and we've seen the fallout of it, but he's on camera on microphones stating his goal and his goal is that they would implant female organs into him in place of his male organs for the purpose of conceiving a child for the purpose of aborting the child am I the only one that's heard this this is how far of a reaction to Christianity we have come It used to be legal, safe, and rare. And now it's, let's have one just to show that we can do it. And his goal is to be the first woman, trans woman, to have not a baby, but an abortion. I mean, it it gives you chills, but this is where we live now. This is the spiritual battle. This is a reaction to the fact that for the last few hundred years, the mores of this country have been the product of the influence of Christianity. And they're reacting against it, and I'll get to it. But friends, during this time, as in all times, the body is one. It is not many bodies. It is one body. And there is an implicit unity between the parts, just as our natural bodies display an overall unity. He notes the difficulty in preserving that unity. Unity is difficult. It shouldn't be because we're one. 
And if we only knew, if we only stayed around, if we only committed ourselves more until we were taught the blessedness of that psalm I read this morning, how blessed it is for brothers to live together in unity. It's like the dew of Hermon falling, that refreshing cold dew in a hot arid land falling upon you and running down the beard of Aaron on his, on his robe. That's the poetic picture we have of unity. If we would only be taught, but it takes humility to be taught. It takes patience because we think we know and then we find out we don't. Or we should rejoice that our knowledge is refined because someone taught it to us, but it's not our nature. And so unity is evasive. So it's difficult to preserve unity, and it's all too easy to ignore certain truths for the sake of easier assimilation of new members. Oh, don't make them say that. Just let them in. Get the tithe. (laughs) I don't know why people do it if it isn't for the tithe. That's I don't know. Evangelism would be a lot easier if we'd cut out a lot of stuff about sin. In fact, I think most evangelicals have. Evangelism could be made less offensive if we would lay aside certain truths that are offensive in our pluralistic society, like original sin or total depravity, right? Some of our beliefs seem extremely hateful to the society at large, as I've pointed out. But we can't jettison them on that basis, friends. It was always that way. Keep in mind always that they killed the Savior for teaching these things. They martyred the apostles for saying the things I'm saying now. It's my belief that the great movement in our day to get the populace to agree to certain obviously impossible social constructions is a reaction to the fact that the current constructions are the product of hundreds of years of Christian influence on Western mores. You're not men and women. That's just a social construction imposed on you by a perverse group of people called Christians. That's the view today. I hope you know this. I hope this isn't brand new. But if it's brand new, you heard it here first. The new woke mentality of the day is a reaction against the professed Christian monopoly on the nature of God for the last few hundred years. Christianity had the biggest voice in the land. It doesn't seem to be the case anymore. And so our society is reacting against things like, number one, God created them male and female. Well, no, no, no. Your God may think he did. It's a reaction, right? It used to just be known. It used to be taught. Friends, it's even affecting science and medical science, which is frightening. A second thing, a man should not lie with a man as with a woman. From Leviticus, right? And another thing that's being reacted to. The wrath of God upon Sodom and Gomorrah for the very sins that today's progressive movement is rejoicing in. They hate that we taught that and still do. They don't believe it. And they want to react against it. This is the spiritual battle. And so the battle that was alluded to has become for the Christian of today a very real and violent struggle. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God 
for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. He's talking about knowledge. He's talking about casting down arguments. This is the battle. Talking about pulling down strongholds. You can't cast down an argument if you're too fearful to enter into the conversation. Our oneness is not dependent upon oneness of thought. Our oneness is bestowed upon us from above. But our unity is a thing we strive to keep. Oneness is a gift of the new birth. Unity is the product of intellectual exercise. Unity is the sign of a mature body. Till we all come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To a perfect man. That's a sign of a mature or maturing body. Now, in seeking to establish this unity, it's incumbent upon us not to jettison the newest believers among us because they have not yet been educated to all of the essentials. I'm against blowing away the new believer with some of the more controversial things the first, in the first conversation. But I see people do it all the time. Allow people to marinate a little in truth and the Holy Spirit. And that's the thing that chapter 14 is going to deal with when we get there. Here's a couple of examples from chapters 14 and 15. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. You know, you get people to say, I just put it on the line. I say what's on my mind. And they think that's a virtue. Friends, it's not. It's a, what makes you think that's not sin? To be unfiltered and just sort of blow everyone away with your direct thought that came into your mind. This is just straighten him out. Paul says, go easy on, on younger, weaker believers. We have an eternity for this. We ought to take our time with it to some extent. That's Romans 14.1. Romans 15.1 says, We then who are strong, mature Christians ought to bear with the, not the weak, but the scruples of the weak. People come in, you don't scour off all the sin and doubt and unbelief right away. Look at the apostles. They walked with him and were still surprised that he died. Now what do we do? No, it's hard. It takes time to develop disciples. Being right, in other words, is overrated. We ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each one please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. They'll come around in time. I've seen it. And of course, Paul uses minor non-essential beliefs to teach self-sacrifice for the sake of brotherly love. Let's not forget last week's teaching on humility. Remember, lowless of mind... Tapino frasune, that great long word Paul invented because the Greeks and Romans didn't have a word. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things. Associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. You know, when you're really mature and grounded in your beliefs, you're not defensive when someone disagrees. You ought to 
be ready for it. You know people don't agree with the gospel. You just have to look around and you know that. Don't be surprised if someone disagrees with you. And the first thing that you may not want to tell the guys, you're blinded by Satan. I mean, that can come in at some point, and maybe it has to. But I might save that little volley for later on when I really need to blow something up. Oh, so I'm satanic. And now you're stuck with the, the answer. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus said it. <laughs> Okay, so he speaks of things in chapter 14, like food and drink and the observation of certain days. You know, one party partakes of food and drink and the observation of certain days, and another party, for reasons of conscience, does not. And he's going to deal with how we should deal with those things, right? We're not to press press such things prematurely with a so-called weaker brother, right? For a weak brother, friends, may yet be a true brother. We were all weak brothers and sisters at one time, I'm presuming. I mean, I didn't come into the faith as smart, really. That was a joke. Forget it. Tough crowd to say. However, with regard to essential teachings, our differences are used to weed out from among the body of false beliefs. That's what we use doctrine for, to weed out false beliefs. In the final analysis, friends, it is our doctrine that will test our fidelity to Christ. Here's my example. Jesus said to a group of disciples, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Friends, that blew a bunch of Jews out of the water that day. First of all, they didn't touch a dead thing, much less eat each other. And I'll raise him up on the last day. In other words, to get eternal life, I have to eat this man. And he said it. And he said it plainly. And he drove it home because he, he knew it was separating the believing disciples from the unbelieving disciples. He said, my flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. And then we read, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? From that time Many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Doctrine divides. And sometimes Jesus does it to divide. I want to teach my people now, and so I'm going to put this out there. These people don't understand it either, but they're going to stay because I said it. Right? That's what Jesus is thinking. They don't understand it either. In fact, he tested him. He said, do you want to go too? And what did, and what did Peter say? Where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. He was talking about words the whole time. I'm the bread from heaven. Wasn't really bread. My flesh is food. It wasn't really food. He used parables and um, symbols all the time, symbolic language all the time, to weed out the disciples. It's not for them to know, he said. It's for you to know. Now whole cults have risen up over the flesh-eating thing. You know, in the Catholic Church, they believe they actually turn the body into, turn the bread into flesh and the wine into blood. So there are believing disciples and unbelieving disciples, and the unbelieving will leave as soon as the doctrine offends them. Are you one offense away from, from leaving the church? It, it, people, it seems to me, it's an American thing. We're one offense away. We're really a bunch of snowflakes. 
Oh, I don't agree with that. I'm out of here. One thing could be small. We've seen it even recently. To drop such beliefs in order to be less offensive and more easily approachable is not the goal. Unity of thought and mind of doctrine and practice is the goal. Unity cannot produce truth, friends. But truth produces unity. Remember that. Unity is a strength only if it's unity in truth. Otherwise, it's a weakness, and it will insulate you further from truth. Before we can have unity between Christians, we first have to ask one essential thing. What is a Christian? Your friend there at the church doesn't know what a Christian is. He doesn't know what a Christian is. He thinks the, I think his theology is like a Christian is a good guy. You know, he holds the door for people at the grocery store. He lets you pass at the intersection. That's a Christian. That's what he does. I don't, I don't know what people are thinking. He helps out his neighbor. He lends his ladder so his neighbor can do his tool. Or maybe he fixes somebody's brakes on their car. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, Donnie. (laughs) Donnie's a good brother in the Lord, man, and he knows the doctrine. Otherwise, I wouldn't pick on him. It's my observation that the apostle has taught in the first 11 chapters the nature and beliefs of the true Christian. And in the next few chapters, he's teaching on the nature and beliefs of the true church. See, he taught us what a true Christian is. Now he's telling us what a true church is. It matters because when you were a Christian, how did Lloyd-Jones say it last week? Uh, uh, The first place you find a Christian is in the church. He said, Christians are people who get together and they gather together because they're born again, he said. So verse 6, the first half of it, having then gifts differing, See, oneness of body, difference of gifts. According to the grace that is given to them, let us use them. Friends, we should use our gifts. Some of our gifts are, are a small, uh, even minuscule things. But they're still gifts from God and are important. Just like every brick in the wall contributes to the whole structure. And you wouldn't want to pull one out here, one out here like a Jenga. We're not Jenga. We're not the, we're not the Jenga church. He then goes on to list the gifts with their applied functions in the church. If prophecy, then prophesy, right? He goes down um, in proportion to our faith. If ministry, let us use it in ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts. Maybe you're an exhorter. Maybe you're an encourager. That's a gift of God. You know, I've heard that said of the other Donnie. Donnie's an encourager. You've always told me that. Of course, it's his wife, so we can't really be certain. But let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil. Be kindly affectionate to one another. He's telling people how to be the church and use their gifts within the church. But I'll open this section with an illustration of my own teaching. I've always said that we have in our country a great medical establishment. Our medical experts have found ways to alleviate so much human suffering. It's really amazing. The rest of the world is clamoring for the little expertise that our doctors have in their bag, in their back pocket. You know, the whole cleft palate thing, you see. They're looking for people to help with this fairly minor thing around the world, but they don't have what we have. 
We've been really blessed. I applaud the medical, the medical community. It's a wonderful thing that we have so many specialists. Friends, you can go to a specialist, like a, if you have a problem with your fingernail, there's probably a fingernail specialist. He probably has a union, in fact. <laughs> fingernail union. <laughs> As I was treated for certain afflictions myself, I can say that my body has greatly benefited from the wisdom and practice of the medical community. So why do I still argue with my doctors? I'm going to tell you why. First of all, before I criticize my own doctors, I want to tell you, they're my friends. They're on speed dial. They're my friends because they want me to fix their houses and things. Okay? My cardiologist said to me the other day, Karen and I walked in, he goes, I almost called you the other day, and I'm like, ugh. He said, I'm looking at a house in Osterville, and I wanted you to look at it and tell me if it was a good house. And I'm like, if I leave you and go to another doctor, you won't be able to afford Osterville. (laughs) That's what I told him. I said, I'm your best patient. I've been 16 years. But my, my heart surgeon, my heart, my cardiologist is not my surgeon. I also have a surgeon, right? But my cardiologist, he really cares about my heart, and I love the guy, right? But he only cares about my heart. If he gives me a pill that will destroy my brain, he's fine. As long as, as, long as my, my heart's pumping. And I tell him that. I, I tell him that all the time. I have an orthopedic doctor for bones, a, a gastroenterologist for digestive issues, and a number of other specialists. Did I say gastroenterologist right? Because the spell check would not do that for me. But I found that my heart doctor may give me something that improves my heart function, and that makes him very happy. What makes him unhappy is that occasion when I'll not take his advice. I don't just take it right away. And, you know, I've had doctors say, go online, look it up. They didn't used to say that. They used to say, oh, I wouldn't go online, you know, and I, and I would agree with that. But I've had a doctor tell me to do that. Um, and so he gets frustrated, and he says, I've... I've treated you for 16 years. Why won't you just do what I tell you? Maybe there's too much information out there, but I found that he's concerned with my heart, that my brain is of little concern to him. And I tell him that. Um, I could tell you a long story, but I think I'll spare you. But in the past, I've refused medication to improve heart issues that have been shown to be troublesome to liver or intestinal issues. Because I have... All of these things, I guess. But you see, I, I love having a strong functioning heart. But I cherish the function of my brain and other organs as well. And so I argue with my specialists along these lines. If a medication of one organ is helpful to that organ, but not so helpful or may be harmful to another organ, I may opt for an alternative course. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's the lesser of two evils if you want to live you know, without pain or something. But... Um, so I put my doctors into the challenge and we argue about these things Marge knows my doctor but uh, he's a good guy he's a really good guy I found that the medical community um, talks about the importance of a second opinion but I got a second opinion one time and, and the, the doctor I got the second opinion from was in the same building as the doctor I got the first opinion from and they knew each other and he said wait a minute you were with doctor so and so what are you doing he was mad that I got a second opinion. I said, I'm getting a second opinion. Can I get a second opinion? <laughs> but um, uh, there's a whole Seinfeld skit on that. But um, 
I know what can happen if I favor one part over another, so I strive to keep up this great balancing act so that all the parts can be healthy and useful to the whole. So like our natural bodies, the unity of the body of Christ is an extreme balancing act between the nature and function of the many diverse parts of the body. Now, I've said to you that illustrations don't usually represent an exact parallel of the reality, but this, this illustration of the body of Christ is, is pretty close to an exact parallel of a body. Such things can be pushed too far. However, it seems Paul is content to push this illustration very far. One part of the body may not be emphasized or magnified over the other parts. And I'm going to give you, having said all that about the body and the organs and all of that, I want to give you another experience of mine. I have been privileged and blessed with grace to preach and teach over these many years to my own beloved local body. And that is a function of what? Of my brain and my mind and my spirit and my voice. But there have been times when I couldn't make it to the pulpit in 28 years, right? And I should tell you that those times when I've not been able to perform this function, it had nothing to do with my tired or defective brain. That's what I preach with, my mind, my brain, my thoughts, my voice, right? It had to do with other parts of my body that dragged me down. It was the non-thinking parts that kept me from the pulpit. The body has to work as one in this balancing act. You see what I'm saying? There have been a number of sermons, friends, that I've written on hospital beds that I could never preach. And it wasn't because my brain wasn't functioning or I couldn't talk. It was because other parts of the body were dragging me down. The body has to be considered. All the parts. I was not able to preach those sermons because of other defective parts of the body. Right? And some of you have been around and you remember all those things, but... So Paul writes this to the, the Corinthians, and I'll, and I'll close with this. He says, as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. One body, many members, so also is Christ. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care for one another. Amen. And I'll end with this. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. That's my illustration. If one body part suffers, it can keep the greater parts from functioning in the glory that was intended for them. Everyone has a part. You are not insignificant. But you have a part to play in the body of Christ. And I think you know what that part is. If you've been a Christian a while, I think if you're self-examining at all, you know you have a part to play, and you know it's an important part. All the members suffer with it. Have you ever had a, 
infection. It's funny, I saw this in, in Lloyd-Jones, but I'd said this my whole life. I love when that happens because I, I, I love to be in sync with Lloyd-Jones. But um, he said, have you ever had an infection like in your finger or in your little toe or something? And you go to bed and there's no way you can sleep. It's throbbing and it's killing you, right? But it's a toe or a finger. And you think, you almost want to just cut it off, for the, you know, and so, I, so I can get some rest. But it's, we're all connected. The body is connected. If one member suffers, the whole body goes without sleep. All, if one member rejoices, they all rejoice with it. That is the antidote to envy. Be glad when someone else is blessed. I taught it to my boys and they learned it. And they're good brothers to one another as a result of it. All the members rejoice when one member is honored. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Amen. Father, let us learn these truths. Let us act them out in our lives. Oh, Father, what a blessed privilege it is to be the body of Christ. Father, let us know the gifts and importance of every member of this local body. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.